Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Blackfriars. How are you? Marvellous, marvellous. Great to be back here. Start of a new term, new academic year. You've all got your new pencil cases. And we have a brand new squeaky clean sermon series for us to get excited about as well. Woo. Uh, The title of this series, as you have just heard, is Faithful Presence. It'll take us up to around about Christmas time. And the idea behind this series is basically this. The world has changed. Our nation has changed. And for some time in the West, the church has been in considerable decline. In fact, there's a couple of graphs coming up on the screen showing you some of what's been happening in the UK and the US in particular. I'm sure this won't come as a surprise to any of you. Now, as an aside, it's important to remember the global picture is actually very different indeed. We'll come back to that a little later on. But in our own culture, at least, in our own society, it's not only the case that Christianity is no longer the majority view, it's now very much a minority view, but more than that, to many in our society, the whole idea of faith seems outdated, irrelevant, a relic of the past. How can anyone be stupid enough to believe in something like God anymore? And when you live in a society like this, it can provide a whole load of pressures and challenges for those who want to follow Jesus. How do you live? What do you do? That's kind of what this series addresses. Well, of course, this kind of situation is nothing new. And the Bible actually has a whole lot to say about how do you live in the midst of a culture that thinks and feels very differently indeed. And we're going to spend the first few weeks of this series looking at the life of a guy called Daniel who knew all about this kind of pressure. How do you stay faithful to God in the midst of a society that has a very different set of values? And I want to start by reading the first few verses from Daniel chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn there. And the words will also be on the screen if you want to follow along. This is where the story of Daniel starts. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Let's just pause there for a moment. The story of Daniel starts with Daniel, his friends, the whole nation in a very bad place indeed. Jerusalem's been conquered by the Babylonians, the city left in ruins, and not actually just the articles from the temple. Many of the people have been carried off into exile, leaving only a remnant behind. Now, I want to start by refreshing some of our memories because we looked at some of this over the summer. In the context of the wider biblical narrative, Both Jerusalem and Babylon are deeply symbolic cities, and both of them represent something way bigger than simply their geographical locations. In fact, from one angle, you could argue the whole Bible is an epic tale of a battle between these two cities. So let's just start by reminding ourselves very briefly what they both represent. The word used to describe Babylon in the first three verses of Daniel chapter 1 is the word Shinar. Now, this isn't used often in the Bible, but it's very symbolic when it is used. It first comes into play, Genesis chapter 11, where we read the story of the Tower of Babel being created in the plains of Shinar. Shinar, Babel, Babylon, essentially the same place. And if you remember that story or know of it, you'll remember that this was a place where they were building a tower, firstly, to make a name for themselves rather than for God. And secondly, so they wouldn't have to be scattered over the face of the earth. 
And that's significant because it's a direct violation of what God has commissioned humankind earlier on in Genesis, to go into all the world, to spread out, to bless God's creation, and to make our world everything it can be. And so very early on in the Bible story, the word Shinar, Babel, Babylon, symbolizes not just a city nor even a world superpower, but a whole value system of self, of pride, of lust, of power, of vain glory, of the quest for more, more, more for me to the detriment of everybody else. And from Genesis chapter 11 onwards, really common metaphor in the Bible is that all of humanity is trapped in China. All of humanity is trapped in this value system of self. This is where Daniel has found himself. So what's it like when you live in the midst of a culture like that? Well, let's return to the text for a moment. Daniel chapter 1 starts off, actually in the Hebrew, very strong language indeed, and all the verbs are ascribed to Nebuchadnezzar or to Babylon. He came, he besieged, he got the articles from the temple, he carried them off into exile. What's the writer doing? He's saying this, that all the force, the drive, the energy, the power and the strength, it's all coming from Babylon. What's Babylon trying to do? Verses 4, 5 and 6. I'll summarize it. It's coming up on the screen. Daniel and his friends have to wear the clothes, eat the food, drink the drink, learn the language, read the literature, receive the training. And then in verse 7, biggest insult of all. Daniel and his friends have their names removed and they are given new names, the names of the gods of the Babylonian culture. In other words, whenever Daniel hears his name spoken, hey Belshazzar, how you doing? There's this nagging thought, this question inside, has my God lost? Has Bel's prince, the sun god, won? Is my faith even relevant anymore? What the writer is doing is this, he's saying when you live in Babylon... When you live in the land of self, Babylon will try and forcibly conform you into its image. That you look and think and feel like everybody else. Not simply wear the clothes and learn the language. Take on the values. Worship their gods. Forget about your faith. This is the conformity of life in Babylon. I want to give you a really silly illustration of what this kind of conformity looks like. I want to show you a two-minute video clip from a very, very old television show called Candid Camera. Does anyone remember this show? Old people in the room, basically. <laughs> I used to uh, watch this with my grandparents growing up, and the idea behind the show is they would put secret cameras around the place and try and make innocent fun of members of the public as they went around their daily lives. And this is a clip from a very famous episode in 1962, way before I was born, I want to make clear. And the episode is called Face the Rear, and it centers around a lift, an elevator, for those of you from the United States. And of course, we all know when you go into a lift, you walk in and you turn and you face the doors. That's the right, that's the socially acceptable thing to do. Well, this episode tried to prove otherwise. It's two minutes long, hope you enjoy it. Let's play the clip now. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with a white shirt, the lady with a trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff, will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, He looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more <laughs> to the wall. 
Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door, everybody's changed positions. <laughs> see if we can use now we'll see if we can use group pressure for some good now in a moment on Charlie's signal everybody turns forward notice they take off their hats <laughs> and now do you think we could reverse the procedure watch love that clip. Uh, that is a metaphor for life in Babylon. Babylon seeks to turn us from being outward looking, wanting to make a difference in the world, wanting to fulfill God's great mission to slowly, maybe even over time, imperceptibly turning inward, becoming like everybody else around us and obsessing around our own petty, selfish little worlds. And as an aside, by the way, if you or you know somebody else primarily thinks and feels and believes just like everybody else around you, most likely, most likely, you have been formed not by God nor either by yourself, but primarily by the culture in which you live. This is life in Babylon. It seeks to form us into its own selfish image. And when we live up to Babylon standards, every time I live by the value system of self, it actually changes me not just outwardly but inwardly. I want to give you a more serious example of this. This is uh, from a book by Philip Yancey, an author I hugely admire, called Finding God in Unexpected Places. And by curious coincidence, he tells the story of a guy called Daniel who wants a bit of a pastoral chat. Daniel's married, he's got a family, and he sits Philip Yancey down and asks this question. Uh, Mr. Yancey, I want to go and have an affair. I want to know if I do, will God still forgive me? If I cheat on my wife, abandon my children, Go and have an affair. Will God still forgive me? What would you say in a moment like that? Here's what Philip Yancey says. Of course. Of course God will forgive you, Daniel. Read your Bible. Look at David, Peter, Paul. God builds his kingdom on the backs of people who commit adultery, deny him, and murder. Of course he will forgive you. But. Here's a very big but. What we have to go through to commit sin, to live by Babylon standards, it distances us from God. In the very act of rebellion, we change in here. And there is no guarantee we will come back or we will want to come back in the future. Oh, you ask me about forgiveness now, Daniel, sure. But will you even want it later, especially if it involves repentance? That's a profound answer. Here's what Philip Yancey says happened next. Daniel went and had his affair. First thing that happened was he started to justify his own behavior. Oh, it's right for me to do this. I was really unhappy. It was good to live for self. 
It's the right thing for me to do. Second thing that happened was he started distancing himself from his Christian friends. Oh, they're all too narrow-minded. Third thing that happened was he just started seeking out people who thought just like him, who celebrate my newfound liberation. And by the end of his journey, he was saying things like this. God's not really part of my life right now. Maybe later. Maybe later. Or maybe not. You see, when I live by Babylon standards, if I live for me, stuff goes on in here. I end up changing, and I slowly and steadily lose my identity, my distinctiveness, my freedom, because I just take on the values of everybody else around me. This is life in Babel. This is the pressure that Daniel's under. Don't simply wear the clothes and learn the language. No, 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 worship our gods. Take on our values. Abandon your faith. So how on earth do you live in the midst of a culture like that? How do you live in the culture of self? What on earth does Daniel do? Well, before we look at what Daniel does do, I want us to spend a few minutes looking at what he does not do. Because when you live in this kind of pressure cooker, there are a whole load of temptations you can very easily fall into. First thing Daniel does not do is he doesn't fight back. It can be really tempting when you live in Babylon to judge and to criticize and to, and to fight back. You know, 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus lived in metaphorical Babylon. Not Babylonian rule now. Now it's the rule of the Roman Empire, which in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, is called Babylon because it's seen as an embodiment of this value system of self. And there are a group of people around Jesus who adopted this philosophy. They were called the Zealots. And their thinking went something like this. If we want God's kingdom to come, if we want the world to be a better place, then we need to overthrow Babylon by force and violence if necessary. And when we do that, when we depose off Babylon, then the world will be a better place. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, shows how futile this approach is. You fight Babylon on its own terms, the land of self, you're going to lose. Second thing that Daniel does not do, he doesn't withdraw. He doesn't escape. In Jesus' day, this approach was adopted by a group called the Essenes. And the philosophy went something like this. We recognize how bad Babylon is. We don't want to live by the standards of self, so we're going to escape. We're going to withdraw, live in our own monkish little commune with people who are just like us, so corrupt Babylon out there doesn't mess with what's going on in here. Uh, interestingly, there's an academic in the United States called Greg Forster who has studied the church in the West over the last 100 years, and it's his conviction that the primary posture the Western church has adopted towards secular society is a combination of these two approaches, fighting and withdrawing. Let me give you a little example of this. When the cinema became a form of mass entertainment in the UK, the church was deeply unhappy. The church was concerned this new modern medium would be a platform for promoting values like sex and violence. So the church did two things. Firstly, they judged, they criticized, they threw stones. This is a really bad place. And secondly, they avoided it completely and told others to do the same. The cinema got dubbed as the sin in the ma. The sin in the ma. Because that's how bad a place the cinema is, apparently. Well, just to be clear, I don't want to completely poo-poo that approach. I don't want to say it's all bad, and here's why. Sometimes it's good to be careful what we watch, because there's stuff out there that's just not helpful at all to what's going on in here. And sometimes it is right to stand up and say, that is wrong. I get that. But I would humbly suggest that the world will not be changed that Babylon will not be overcome through protests and through boycotts. We might win many victories, sure. But fighting and withdrawing don't change the world, and they certainly don't overcome Babylon. Daniel avoids this mistake too. Third mistake Daniel doesn't make is he doesn't compromise. 
the Sadducees fell into this trap in Jesus' day. And the philosophy goes something like this. Maybe there's something to be said for Rome's values, for chasing money and power and pleasure. So let's try and take some of these values and merge them with our faith. Uh, just to be clear, that the Bible is brutally explicit on this. This always, always, always ends in disaster. This is why Jerusalem has got itself into this mess in the first place. Genesis 11, we read about the land of Shinar, this value system of self. Genesis 12, next step of God's master restoration plan. He comes to a guy called Abraham and he says, I want you to leave your people and your father's household. Come out of this value system and go to the land I'm going to show you. And therein begins the story of the emergence, not just of a people, but of a nation, but of a city, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem symbolizes something way bigger than simply its geographical location. It's a value system of justice and righteousness and holiness and peace. Psalm 48, it's the joy of the holer. But slowly and steadily, Jerusalem has wandered away from its core. It's adopted the practices of the nations round about, and now it's indistinguishable. And basically what happens is it just gets absorbed into Babylonian culture, and the people are left as slaves. That's a very powerful metaphor for what happens when you live by Babylonian standards. might feel good for a while, but it always ends in slavery. I had one author put it like this, that sin, living for self, it always, always, always works until it doesn't. It always works until it doesn't. Let me explain it this way. You see, Babylon recognizes the pressure of living there. Even Babylon gets it. You see, when you live in a land that's all about self, there's this enormous pressure to be the best, to be cleverer and more popular and richer and more successful than everyone else around you. And when you're not like that, because most of us aren't the best, when you're not like that, it leaves this inner ache inside about my self-worth, my identity. How do I compare to others? What do I have to do to get ahead? And because Babylon recognizes the pressure, the pain within, Babylon has provided a whole load of medications to try and ease what's going on inside. Let me give you some of them. Number one, workaholism. Oh, if you feel the pain, work harder. Stay longer at the office. Get the promotion. Get more money. Oh, it eases the pain. And it works and it works and it works until it doesn't. And at the end of that road, I find myself in a different form of slavery. Let me give you another of Babylon's medications, consumerism. Oh, how do I look? How do I compare? Oh, if I buy this new outfit or invest in this new product, oh, I, I feel so much better. But then the fashions wear out and the technology breaks down and I need more and then I need more and then I need more. And at the end of that road, different kind of slavery to image or financial bondage or something even worse. Let me give you another of Babylon's medications, withdrawing from community or unforgiveness. You see, if I live in a land where it's all about the promotion of self, when others get ahead of me, oh, it, it can feel painful. Are they trampling on my own little kingdom? And so the thinking goes that if I push other people away, if I don't let them get close, then they can't hurt me. And if I live a self-reliant and autonomous life, oh, it feels like it works for a while. People aren't hurting me. And it works and it works and it works until it doesn't. And at the end of that road is a different kind of loneliness and brokenness and slavery. Sin always works until it doesn't. Maybe you can relate to some of that going on in your own heart. I know I sometimes can. Fighting, withdrawing, compromising, so tempting to engage with Babylon in those ways. None of them work. None of them change the world. None of them overcome Babylon. Daniel manages to avoid all three. So what does he do? And what do we do? How do we live 
when we're trapped in this value system of self? Well, hey, this is church. So it stands to reason the answer is going to be Jesus somewhere along the line. Uh, That's where I want to start. I think actually the ultimate answer to living in Babylon is to fix our eyes on Jesus and devote ourselves to him. That was a real theme of our retreat just over a week ago, that maybe, maybe God's speaking to us as a church. Let's just make the main thing the main thing. Let's just devote ourselves to him again. There's nothing better. Let me show you how I get there. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, we read this. The Lord delivered Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 1, to the naked eye, if you don't know this verse, it looks like Babylon's the better place to live. Looks like Babylon's the place where you're going to be happier. Jerusalem's in ruins. The writer says, no, 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 look deeper. A bit like Charlie Mackesy in that clip, get closer. Look harder. Whatever Babylon may say, there's someone greater in charge. That's where our focus can be. We can trust in him. You know what? I totally get all the headlines right now, church decline in the West. Richard Dawkins predicts the church will be dead, extinct in the West in 50 years' time. Let's remind ourselves again, the global picture is very different. Century after century after century of continued growth. Jesus himself promised his kingdom would be like a little seed that grows into a great tree and impacts all the nations of the world. Whatever Babylon might look like and whatever Babylon may say, there is a Lord who is overall and we can trust in him. That's how we live in Babylon. And then the last line of Daniel chapter 1 amplifies this further. We read this line, and Daniel remained in Babylon till the first year of King Cyrus. Why does the writer include that? There's more of Daniel in Babylon to come. We've got another 11 chapters to come. Why does the writer end up going there? Most commentaries agree when Daniel and his people go into exile, he's probably, probably between 10 and 15 years old. And by the way, maybe even made a eunuch as well. I mean, he's a kid. When Cyrus comes to the throne, well, he rules not the Babylonian Empire. There's a new world superpower, Persia. So this is about 70 years in the future. Daniel's about 80 Why does the writer go there? Here's what the writer's doing. If you're struggling with the pressure of living in Babylon right now, Nebuchadnezzar's will rise and fall. Kingdoms will come and go, but there's another king who's going to come. And if you know Israel's story, Cyrus was a deeply symbolic figure. Because actually, in the first year of his reign, he says to the exiles, you can go back to Israel and you can rebuild the temple, the city, and the nation. This new king who's going to come is going to change everything. And and therefore, let us remember that Daniel chapter 1 was not written primarily for Daniel. It was written primarily for us. And so as we're living with the pressure of, oh, the pain of Babylon, my self-worth, my identity, and oh, no, there's another king who's going to come way beyond Cyrus. Persian Empire rises and falls too, but we're left looking even further into the future to the king who's going to come and change everything. We're left looking to Jesus. This is the simple answer. This is how you live in Babylon. You look like you need an illustration. Let me give you one. <laughs> a few decades ago, um, there was a very famous boxer called Muhammad Ali. He was the greatest. 1974, he had a very famous fight called the Rumble in the Jungle with a boxer by the name of George Foreman. This point in time, Ali was getting on in boxing years. He was pretty old for a boxer. Contrastingly, Foreman was the hottest new thing in town. He was young. He was undefeated. He was the strongest guy in the world. And by Foreman's own admission, he was a horrible man. He hated people. He was violent and angry, and he lived to hurt people in the ring and out of it. And Muhammad Ali knew, if I try and fight George Foreman on his own terms, I'm going to lose. 
So what's he going to do? Well, Muhammad Ali comes up with a tactic that nobody else in all of history had ever thought of in boxing history before. He called it the rope-a-dope strategy. Philosophy goes something like this. I'll use the rope, foreman will be the dope. And the idea was this. I'm going to just hold my hands in the air, like he's doing there, and allow foreman to hit me. And I'm going to hope the rope will take most of the impact. And he basically spread his arms and said, go on, George, hit me with everything you've got. Hit me again. Hit me again. Hit me again. A lot of the reporters from the day said they were concerned during the fight that Ali would lose his life, so relentless was the onslaught. Minute after minute after minute, Foreman just pounds Muhammad Ali again and again and again. But then comes this moment in the fight where George Foreman has nothing left to hit with. He's hit and he's hit and he's hit and he's been found wanting. His strength is gone. Then come this, comes this moment where Ali comes off the ropes. Bam! Foreman knocked to the floor. Ali triumphant champion of the world. Here's what the metaphor represents. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to live in metaphorical Babylon. He wore the clothes, he learned the language, he submitted to Roman laws, Roman taxes, Roman punishments. And if Jesus fights Rome on Rome standards, the world's not going to get changed. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't fight, he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't compromise. He comes up with a strategy that nobody else in history had ever thought of before. His own rope-a-dope strategy. He's going to give up his life. Sacrificial love. The hallmark of Babylon is self. Jesus is like, I'm going to lay self down. And when he hangs on the cross, it's as if he says to death and evil and darkness, hit me. Give me all you got. You think you can get to the bottom of my love? You think you can exhaust my grace? Ah, oh, hit me again. Hit me again. Hit me again. And when Jesus loses his life to the whole world, to Babylon, to evil, to darkness, it looks like the land of self has won. But then comes Sunday. After the cross comes the empty tomb. And Jesus emerges off the ropes. Bam! Death defeated. Sin dealt with. He rises triumphant, the champion of the world. This is where our focus should be. You want to know how to live with the pressure of Babylon? You're even feeling it now? Look to the one who's beaten Babylon by laying down his life. Put your trust in him. This is the number one key. It's the only answer. It's Jesus. The king who's going to come and change everything. Let's make him our number one goal and, and, and ambition. This is where our focus should be. I once heard John Ortberg, who's uh, a brilliant author and speaker who I admire deeply, put it like this. You know, in many ways, we worship and wander at the manger and we rejoice at the empty tomb, but it's at the cross where we meet Jesus. Let me try and explain it this way. I want you to imagine at the end of the summer, I say to myself, I've, I've put on a lot of weight and I need to get fit. It's just a metaphor. That's all it is. Just a metaphor. <laughs> but what if I say to you, but oh, I, I'm not sure I can go to the gym the people there are so attractive, they're so muscly, they're so beautiful. Like, I feel like I need to get fit to go there, but I need the gym to get fit. And so I feel like I'm just trapped in my flab forever. <laughs> what? Don't laugh too hard. <laughs> it's just picture language. So often I do that with Jesus. You know, if I said that, you'd be like, no, Andy, you're totally misunderstanding what the gym's for. You, you, don't, go to the, uh, you don't get fit to go to the gym. You go to the gym to get fit. 
It's the same with Christ. You know, so often I fall into the trap of thinking, oh, if God's going to accept me, I've got to be a, a leader and a ruler. I've got to be impressive. I've got to sort my life out. I've got to clean my life out. Jesus says, no, meet me in your mess. Meet me in your baggage. Confess to me where you've lived up to Babylon standards. Be honest about where Babylon has failed you completely and I will meet you there and I will change your life. You know, George Foreman is the most fabulous example of how Jesus can transform somebody's life. After that defeat to Ali, he kept fighting. He actually did pretty well. But by his own admission, he was a thoroughly horrible man. He was ridiculously wealthy but miserable with it. He was angry and violent. He hated other people. And to give you an idea of how subscribed he was to the value system of self, he had five sons and he named them, and I'm not making this up, George Jr., George III, George IV, George V, and George VI. I bet dinner time was fun. Pass the ketchup, George. Which one? It's all about him. Two years later, Foreman loses again. And he sits alone in his locker room. And he's utterly broken and at the end of himself. He hates himself. He's petrified of death. He's totally alone. And in that moment, remarkably, George Foreman meets Jesus. He describes encountering a power so pure, so loving, so holy. He had a picture of Jesus. He's like, I knew in that moment that Jesus was real and he wanted me. And so in that locker room, George Foreman surrenders his life to Jesus. He's like, Babylon has failed me every step. I want to lay down self. I want to follow him. I want to follow the way of the cross. And his life gets changed. First thing, first thing that happened was he started dancing around the locker room going, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm clean. The trainers had to run and like, what's happened to you? And his life's never been the same again. And if you meet George Foreman today, like he's got the gentlest smile. He's cheerful and generous and kind and compassionate. The picture of him, next slide, this is him today. And he just loves telling people about the difference that Jesus makes in his life. Yes, if you're wondering, he also makes amazing grills as well. <laughs> there we go, next slide, there he is. George Foreman grill, piece of technological brilliance. Um, if you can't cook like me, uh, it's excellent. It's got two temperatures, naught and five million degrees. It will, <laughs> it will burn anything that you want, it's great. All because of Jesus. <laughs> no, no one changes lives like him. Like if you're struggling with life in Babylon right now, image and identity, self-worth, doubts about the future, fears about finance, the pressure of, oh, is my faith even relevant anymore? Hey, Belshazzar, how you doing? What's the answer? Look to the one who's beaten Babylon. Look to the one who laid down self and has changed everything. This is how the world gets changed. Meet him at the cross. And then there's one final thing I just want to draw out this passage. Because I think this leaves us with a question. You see, while Jesus changes our life right now, the world's still broken. Babylon's still very real. Like, how do we live until Jesus comes back and makes everything right? Like, Daniel, maybe he knows, like, I think another king's going to come one day. Nebuchadnezzar's a passing fad. Like, there's a king coming. But that's 70 years in the future. How does he live in the meantime? Well, if you know the story, he gets amazing leadership responsibility. He's an influencer in the kingdom. I thought we'd be looking at that, but I think actually that's a bit of a distraction. 
Because the passage says Daniel does one thing and one thing alone. In fact, it's the first verb that's not ascribed to Babylon in the passage. And it's this, verse 8, he resolves not to defile himself. This is the only thing Daniel does. In other words, Daniel says this, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll learn the language. I'll wear the clothes. I'll submit to Babylonian laws, but here's what I won't do. I will not compromise on my relationship with God in here. That's where I draw the line. I'll do everything else. But I'm going to fix my eyes on the king who's to come, and I'm going to devote myself entirely to him. Now, how Daniel does this is a bit curious. If you know the story, the verses are coming up. He, he basically decides, I'm not going to eat the food or drink the wine. Now, no one actually knows why Daniel makes this choice. Commentators speculate maybe the food was offered to idols, but actually, no one actually knows. But here's the point Daniel knew. Daniel knew that's not right, and we will too. Let me explain it this way. There are a number of rules in the English language that nobody ever taught us, but deep down we somehow instinctively know them. Let me give you an example. If ever you have a word that's repeated in the English language, apart from one vowel, the order of the vowels is always I-A-O. I-A-O. For example, we know clocks go tick-tock. Tock-tick doesn't sound right. It's the pitter-patter of tiny feet. Patter-pitter is just all wrong. Doorbells go ding-dong, not dong-ding. I don't wear flop-flips, I wear flip-flops. I have a sing-song, not a song-sing. If I said to you, I've been listening to some really cool hop-hip music this week, you'd be like, no, no, you haven't. Like, no one taught me this. No one taught me this, but somehow I, I just kind of know. I just kind of know. Let me give you another example. If ever you are describing something, the order of the describing words is always this. Quantity, quality, size, age, shape, color, proper adjective, purpose. No one taught us this. Somehow we just know. A journalist Matthew Anderson puts it like this. So you can have a lovely little old rectangular green French silver whittling knife, but if you mess with that order in the slightest, you'll sound like a maniac. No one taught me. I just, I somehow know. It's kind of the same when you follow Jesus. You just know. This is the right way to go. Now, just a small caveat. I totally get none of us have got all of this figured out. We've got to hold our views with grace and humility. We need a church community around us to help us figure out how do I follow Jesus to the best of my ability. But if I decide to follow Jesus, then the Spirit of God comes to live in me. The law of God gets written on my heart. Jesus says this in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide me into all truth. No one knows why Daniel avoided the food and the wine, but Daniel knew, and we will too. And so it's not my job, though sometimes I would love it to be, to stand here and tell you, don't do this, do that. Don't go to the sin in the ma, it's a bad place. That's not my job. My job is this, to tell us all, fix your eyes on Jesus and devote yourself to him completely. And if you do that with all your heart, you'll know. You'll know. God will guide you. Can I ask you a question? What's God asking you to do right now? You'll know, just like Daniel knew. Here's what excites me, the other side of this resolve. We told Daniel gets wisdom and understanding. He gets spiritual power from God. I can understand dreams and visions of all kinds. He gets an amazing position in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, 10 times better than everyone else. But the writer makes clear, God did all of that. 
God gave the power and the wisdom. He gave the position. God gave all of that. We're not to get distracted by that. We make one decision and one decision alone to devote ourselves to him, to resolve. Can I just ask you for a moment just to close your eyes and bow your heads? Maybe I could invite the band back out. I just want to lead us in a moment of reflection. What is God asking of you right now? Daniel knew. And we will too. Come Holy Spirit of God. Is there a risk that you need to take? Is there a behavior that you need to cut out? Is there a habit that you need to confess? Is there a relationship that you need to mend? Is there a fear that you need to break through? Is there a responsibility that you need to take up or to lay down? Is there a decision that you really need to make? Is there something that you need to say sorry for? Is there a spiritual practice you need to give attention to? Daniel knew. Daniel knew. More of your presence, Lord. More of your presence. Father, I want to ask that at the start of this new term, this new academic year, that you would help us to fix our eyes on the King who's come and changed everything. I want to ask that you would help us resolve to put you first, above and ahead of all else. Whatever happens in the future, we lay our vain ambitions aside. We want to be a people that are devoted wholly to you. I want to pray as you look on hearts now that are saying, okay, I fix my gaze on you, that you would show us the way. Take us the next step. Speak to us gently about what we are to do next. And as we respond with obedience, I ask the other side of that for blessing, for wisdom, for spiritual power and amazing opportunity and influence. But may we be a people who resolve. We love you, Lord Jesus. As we sing now, take these words as an expression of our devotion to you.
May this be a holy moment of consecrating our lives entirely for you. We love you. We need you. Draw close by your presence, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.